Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40 this morning. In this, what we're going to see is really this continuation of the um, Philip's missionary journey, essentially. This is going to be the second portion of it, uh, of his missionary or evangelistic efforts, uh, after we seeing the scattering of the early church due to the persecution effect, uh, efforts of Saul. Um, and in this, we're going to look at slightly different than I would normally. Normally, I would take the opportunity and I would uh, expose what I think the main point of the text is and then spend the 30 to 40 to however long after that it takes um, in exposing that. But this morning, I want to do it slightly different because I think the main point we can sum up in this first few minutes and then see some implications of the main point and see a very active way in which God was doing something uh, because I think it will apply directly to us this morning. And so before we get into that, though, I just want to pray um, and pray that God would be with us during this time and that we would glorify him in much of what we're doing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we thank you for the wonderful time we've had to sing together and hear one another and be encouraged by that. God, we thank you for the gifts of individuals that are able to lead us in song worship. And God, we pray now as we approach your word, God, that it would um, reveal something to us and encourage us and even possibly convict us where convicting needs and we just pray that you would be with us now in your son's holy name. Amen. So I said this a second ago, but I do think that we're going to look at something that's not necessarily the main point. But the, I do believe that the main point of this passage would be that uh, God was actively fulfilling his mission of furthering the gospel past the Jews to all people who would believe and trust in the name of Jesus for salvation. Okay, I'm going to say that again. I believe that the main point of the passage is that, that God was actively fulfilling his mission of furthering the gospel past the Jews to all people who would believe and trust in his name. And so let's read the scripture together. Starting in verse 26, we're going to go all the way through 40. It says this, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, towards the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he, arose, and he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit of the, said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. I'm going to read it, but this is Isaiah 53. It says, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its seer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom? 
I ask you. Does this prophet say this about himself or someone else? The Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded his chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he, was, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I don't know why I can't say that this morning. So, why do I say that the main point is one thing and we're going to explore something that's an implication of it? Because in this statement earlier, and I'm going to say it one more time, is the main point, I think, is that God was actively fulfilling his mission of furthering the gospel past the Jews to all people who would believe and trust in the name of Jesus for salvation. On the, in this particular text, I think we find it in the identity of this man that Philip leads to Christ. See, he's got this twofold identity that I think we should explore because we don't know anything about him. The only thing we know about this individual is that he is an Ethiopian eunuch. We know not his name. We know his role, but we don't know his name. We don't know exactly what city he's at. We, know, we see his function. We see his job. We see his ethnicity. And we see his physical element, elements. But let's look at these two things. First and foremost, it says that he's an Ethiopian. And in this, what we see is that he is an individual that was separated from the religious practices of the Jews. Why? Because he was a Gentile. Quite ironically, an Ethiopian of this time would have been uh, more... African-American in our perspective. He would have been a dark-skinned individual of African descent, essentially. Um, but biblically, he's, Ethiopia was a place um, that throughout the Old Testament was referred to as the land of the Cush. The land of the Cush. Why is that important? Is that Cush is specified as one of the lands from which the Lord will reclaim the remnant of the people that was left. And when the Messiah was to stand as a banner for the people, the nations would rally for him. Earlier, I read Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, 14 through 20, but I want to read 9 through 10. It's not on the screen. I should have added that. I apologize. If you want to turn with me, you can. But Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10 says this. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech that all of them call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. See, in Acts chapter 8, what we're seeing fulfilled here was an Old Testament prophecy of the outcome of the coming of the Messiah. And that was that he would gather 
of his worshipers, the daughters of the dispersed ones that were bringing an offering. Which is so interesting about this is this man named, who we do not know, is gathering for worship in Jerusalem, though he is Ethiopian, separated from temple worship, from sacrifices. But we certainly see that God something else, had something else in store for this man. He traveled to Jerusalem to worship God, but he encountered God on a dusty road on the way back. The second aspect of this man, though, is that he's a eunuch. Um, see, eunuchs were not allowed in the assembly for sacrifice and worship in the Jewish religious practices. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1 says this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organs is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This man would have fallen into that category in one of those two categories because he was a eunuch. One of those two things occurred in his life to make him a eunuch. It could have been that he was a slave of some sort previously and they did this second or maybe there was some kind of physical issue that he was born with. We don't know. We don't know what caused this man to be a eunuch. But what we do know is the scripture is clear that he's not only Ethiopian, but he's a eunuch. See, he is separated from religious practices and places due to his physical elements, ailments. Why is that important, though? Well, Isaiah 56, just a few verses before, uh, after where this man was reading in this historical moment. And Isaiah 56, 1 through 5 says this. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does them. And the son of man who holds them fast and keep the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeping his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself in the Lord and the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give my house. Within my walls, a moment, a monument, and a name better than the sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Once again, this fact that he's a eunuch is another Old Testament prophetic moment that Christ would fulfill in his death, burial, and resurrection. That not only is this man separated from religious practices of the Jewish culture because of his race and ethnicity, but he is also separated due to his physical elements, ailments. And in being those two things, what we see is that he's a perfect candidate for God to reveal his sovereign plan of saving those who are far away. And so... As I said a minute ago, I think and I'm convinced that the main point of this text is that God was actively fulfilling his mission and furthering the gospel past the Jews to all people who would believe and trust in the name of Jesus for salvation. Even the Ethiopian eunuch.
So how are we gonna look at something slightly different? Is as you see on the screen here, we can see the Spirit's work in personal evangelism. And how is this an implication of this? Is that God was doing something. God was displaying that His grace, His mercy, even His heart was no longer with only the Jews, but the, Jew, the, the Gentile, the foreigner, the eunuch, and whatever the separations of, was of the Old Testament. And because of that, we're going to see very specifically the Spirit's work in this process. Because this is not an appointment that was by accident. This is an appointment that was designed by God so that this man would be saved through the, their faith alone in grace in Christ alone. Look at 26 through 30. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, to Gaza, the desert place. And then he, he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had came to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, Go and join the chariot. So Philip ran, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. I'm going to stop there. So we see some things going on here. First and foremost, it says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip. This is not something we have to uh, be in disbelief about. We see throughout all of the Old Testament and various times throughout the New Testament, an angel of God being a messenger of God. Because when you look at the Greek for the word angel, it simply, simply means messenger. So an angel of God, a messenger of God, one sent by God to Philip, tells him to do something. It says to rise and go towards the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, the angel didn't say this is a desert place. Luke provided that context so us, for us so that we could understand the concept of what's going on here. So Philip being told by an angel to go toward the south, towards this road down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you remember from last week, if not, I'm going to remind you. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 24... What we saw was essentially this great revival in the town of Samaria where people came, came to know Christ. They were confessing him. They were being baptized by him and the apostles. The Spirit of God just had this historical moment in Samaria where it fell on those who believed and trusted in Jesus. He was in the midst of this spiritual awakening among the people of Samaria. And what does God do in the midst of that? He tells him to get up and go. I don't know about you guys, but when things are going well, and it seems like God is moving and God is actively working and doing something, that's not the time we want to get up and go and do something different. We want to finish riding that train and seeing what God is doing in that certain location or that certain situation. But Philip doesn't hesitate here. Arguably, if an angel came to us and told us that, then we would probably have a similar response to that of Philip 
But what we see going on here is that God is actively pursuing this Ethiopian eunuch. The first way he does is by sending an angel to Philip to tell him to go to this desert place. In verse 27. He says, and he arose and he went. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So there was an Ethiopian eunuch. We've, I've explained the importance of the Ethiopian, and I've explained the importance of the eunuch. So I'm not going to spend time there. But it says he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Um, I, would, I would say that Luke includes this information, one, so we know the context of this individual, but two, so that the person he's writing this to, though some people may believe that he's writing to just a group of people, uh, Theopolis, uh, because it means uh, the loved one, I believe, uh, or something of that nature. Um, many people, and I would fall into this category, would say that most likely he's writing to a specific individual named Theopolis. And Theopolis would have been an individual that had hired Luke to make this historical account. And so maybe Luke is including this information to make this have a little more merit to this high official that he is writing this for. And so he says he rose and he went and there was this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace. Now, I want to be clear here. Candace is not at this woman's name. Her name is not Candace. And she, she that's a... That's a title. That's a role. Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. If I'm remembering my history right in this moment, and I believe I am, the, the way that the Ethiopians' uh, kingship worked is that there would essentially be a queen, okay, title Candace, uh, but the king would actually be her son. And that's how it went down in lineage. And so she is essentially the mother of the king of Ethiopia. And the reason why he's the king of Ethiopia is because his mother is who she is. Okay. He's, this is a high, uh, high up individual within the, the courts of the Ethiopians. And how do we even know that to be true? Since who was in charge of all of her treasure? This guy's high up. He's, he's, the, he's, he's the accountant. He's the wolf of Wall Street, essentially, right? He's the next guy in charge. He's got the money. He's in control of it. And most likely, this is why he has this role. Or he's he, one or two things. He either has this role because he's a eunuch, or he's a eunuch because he has this role. And the reason that is, is it was common for an individual that was a eunuch to have a role like this with a high official female leader. Okay, um, probably for obvious reasons, but more or less, they just seem to have less of a, um, a threat about them to other men around them. And so they would put a eunuch in these positions. But let's not miss what he's doing. It says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Regardless of his physical and Spiritual separations. He is clearly a man of faith. He might have even known the scriptures we read this morning of a time when the Ethiopians would be grafted back in. But he's coming and he's gathering in Jerusalem for worship. But I want you to understand what this would be like for him. 
if this was our context of a temple, if a temple was like this building here, he would be, um, and this is just, you know, a, a weird way of explaining it, but on the other side of the road, you have the campus there, and there's a courtyard right there past the fence. He would be about right there. He wouldn't be able to get into the temple. He wouldn't have been able to make sacrifices. He simply goes to Jerusalem to worship, though he's not actively worshiping in the way of the Israelites. And so he's kind of pushed away at the end of this, probably seemingly leaving unsatisfied about his experience of worshiping Yahweh in Jerusalem. But amongst in his trip here, one practice they would have in the temple is they would sell scrolls. They would sell scrolls and uh, it's kind of like, I don't know if they sold them for monetary gain or any of those things, but they would provide them, they would sell them. It's kind of like our resource table, right? Except for we give them away for free. They would have these resources at the back and you could grab them as you go. And this guy not only just grabs this book from the back, but he takes this book and he's actually reading it on his way home. And what does he grab? What scroll does he have? Because it's not like this. It's not like he has all of the Bible. He just has a portion of it. And the portion that he happens to walk away with as we see in verse 30 is the prophet Isaiah. We're going to get into this more in just a moment when we get into the actual scripture. But what I want us to see in all of these things is the angel of the Lord tells him to what? Go to this road. From there, what does it say? In verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. Philip does. But the third thing we see here is what is he reading? He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah 53, which is the, probably the most common messianic scriptures of the Old Testament. So I don't want us to miss the fact that the Spirit is at work in this encounter of personal evangelism. The Spirit, in three different ways, we see God actively pursuing this Ethiopian eunuch. And it's not by any random circumstances. It's not by happenstance. It's by God's sovereign plan to save this individual and to display that he was saving those that were far off. That his grace was going beyond that of Jerusalem, but going unto Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And in this, we see exactly that in Acts 1.8, that you will receive the Spirit the power of the Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We saw Samaria in the last verses. We've seen Judea happening already a little bit. And we're going to see that more in just the next few weeks. But what we also see here is that of Samaria because he's south of Samaria. But we also see this going to the ends of the earth because in this day, in this time, Ethiopia would have been considered the ends of the earth for these people. God was actively through the work of the Spirit pursuing the Ethiopian eunuch to display his grace. We could stop there. And if we stop there, we would miss the point 
that the means in which God was pursuing this guy was through personal evangelism. Now, I want to be clear. When I say personal evangelism, what I mean by that is one individual sharing the gospel with another individual. Uh, a lot of times I would say that I'm more of a relational evangelism guy where I get to know someone, share the gospel with them, all those things. We don't see that here. It's not a relational aspect. He doesn't know this guy. It's a personal though. He's sharing the gospel with one individual in this one encounter and maybe the, right, the driver of the chariot would have heard it and maybe he was converted too. But certainly there's this one-on-one conversation with this, this Ethiopian eunuch. And so this means in which he, the, the gospel comes through him is through personal evangelism. And let's not miss that there's other ways to evangelize. There's other ways of sharing the gospel. This isn't the only way. This isn't the only right way. Just previously in the first 25 verses, we see more of a uh, group evangelistic moment in the, the area of Samaria. or open air evangelism per se. But now we see the first moment. The first moment in the book of Acts. Well, the gospel goes to one individual and one individual alone. We're going to see it again with that of Lydia and those gathered in Philippi with the Philippian jailer. But we see specifically this one moment, this first moment. And what do we see from Philip's example? Verse 27 says, And he rose and went. Then we're going to skip to 30 through 35. Says it, so Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come upon and sit with him. So the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth and his humiliation, justice was denied him. who was described his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture that he had, he told him and the good news about Jesus. So the first thing we see is that after Philip receives this charge from the spirit of God to to go or from the, the angel of God, to go to this dusty road leading to the desert. What does he do? He rose and went. As I've already said, in the midst of revival, Philip is willing to be obedient. And he goes. But we also see in 30, that when the Spirit of God says, go over to that chair, that's 29. What does Philip do in verse 30? So Philip ran to him. You might would think naturally, have you, have you guys ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? The old one or the new one at least? There's one that came out like 40 years ago and then they remade it. Uh, it's a pretty good movie. It's set in the time of uh, right after Jesus. Well, Jesus, right after Jesus. I'm not exactly sure the timeline there. Um, but it's got chariot races or Gladiator. Anybody ever seen Gladiator with chariot races? Anyway, uh, it wasn't that kind of chariot. This would have been more like a carriage. Similar, not that style, obviously, because this is a more modern style, but a carriage, right? It would have been a carriage that would have carried uh, some treasure, possibly, of the Ethiopian queen. But also, it would have carried uh, this Ethiopian eunuch, and then somebody else would have been driving. The reason why we know somebody else was driving is, what is this Ethiopian eunuch doing on his ride? He's reading the prophet Isaiah. 
Uh, he's not texting and driving in this moment. Somebody else is driving. He's reading the scripture. Uh, but we also say he's reading it out loud, which was a common thing then, because to comprehend it well, they would just read it out loud. And so he's riding along this dusty road. He's reading the scripture out loud. But it says Philip ran to him. And the reason why I, I emphasize all of that before I say this is we may think that these things move very quickly, but they really don't. Their pace is not much different than that of an individual walking. But Philip, in, in a hurry to respond to the work of the Spirit, the call of the Spirit, Philip runs. He immediately goes and he, he asks this guy, when he hears this scripture being read out loud, do you understand what you're reading? Philip, aware of God clearly doing something in this moment, an angel made it clear, the Spirit of God made it clear. So he gets to this individual, he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Most likely still walking alongside this chariot at this point. The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? How can I? How, how am I really to understand this? I, I'm an Ethiopian. I, I clearly, I, I just don't understand what's going on here. It says, and then he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So after this invitation of the Ethiopian eunuch, we see Philip gets into the chariot. And he asked this question. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Man, listen, evangelistic moments don't come on this platter that often. It's just presented to him. It, it, it seems that way at least, right? That he's walking along this chariot, this guy's reading Isaiah 53. I mean, the scripture there says that he's spilt out his blood for us. That he died for us. This one that's just clearly this messianic passage of the coming Messiah. This is what he's reading out loud. And he's going to invite me to answer these questions for him. We may be quick to think that, that these encounters don't happen for us today. But what we see in the life of Philip is God is certainly doing a work in leading all of these moments into place to save this Ethiopian eunuch. But Philip is responding to those moments. He's aware and willing to listen and obey the Spirit of God. And because of that, he finds himself sitting beside this eunuch that asks his questions. He gives him a softball here. Is he talking about himself or someone else? So what does the Scripture tell us Philip does? Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. He walks him through the gospel. And this guy, he's already halfway there. He's in the most relevant Old Testament scriptures there could be. And so he doesn't go anywhere else. He doesn't go through this, this chant or this phrase or this memorized version of the gospel. He starts exactly where this guy is. He tells him the gospel. So we see so far... The Spirit's clear work in saving this Ethiopian eunuch. But the means in which he does this is through the personal evangelism of Philip. So what is the outcome? And we'll go to the next part here. The outcome is very simply the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. Before we read all, let's read 36 through 38. It says, 
and they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip the eunuch, and he baptized him. If your Bible is anything like mine, if you pay very close attention, you'll see it say 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 38. It does not have a 37. Does anybody's Bible have a 37? Huh? That one does. Yeah. NASB would. Uh, is that New King James or ESV? Yeah. Uh, it may be in there too. Look in there. I'm pausing here because I think this is an important lesson that we can briefly touch on before we get into the salvation. Charlotte Claire, baby. It's not time to talk. All right. Go to the bottom of yours on verse 37. Does it give any kind of star in any indication at the very bottom? Reese's does? Okay, we'll read it out loud for her because I know she's not going to. No, the indication at the very bottom. She doesn't have Oh, there's not? This one says, she doesn't have it. She, our Bible doesn't have it. Well, let me read mine. It says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Anything sound wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong with what other translations would add for verse 27. Let me read it again. Verse 36, he asked the questions. See, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? In verse 37, and Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's nothing wrong with that. So why does some Bibles, including my ESV here, not include it? It's because early manuscripts. And this is... Uh, this isn't where newer is better. This isn't like the iPhone or a Jeep or a Sonata or a truck where newer is better. This is older is better. And older manuscripts, older manuscripts say, don't include this. So most likely what's going on here is verse 37 was a textual note that was provided by translators in older times. And, and what happens in, in if you looked into it, whenever they start adding their textual notes, it starts to blend together. And so most likely someone added this by accident or newer like translations or something of that nature. Um, but I would say that it shouldn't be included here. But, but though I agree that it should not be included here, this is certainly what happened in the life of the eunuch. It says, And Philip said, If you believe in your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How can I say that that's something that we, though should not be there, is a good concept to have? Well, if you flip over with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the concept here is not wrong, but it just shouldn't have been included here. And so I'm just going to pause there and just say that if you have any more questions about that, we can certainly be a good conversation to have over lunch, okay? Uh, but let's move on to the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, 
I'm going to pause there. Because I'm, I'm past this point so far, but I want to come back to it. The Spirit's work in this encounter. The reason why I pause here to say that is if you look back with me at the end of verse 26, it says this phrase, this is a desert place. Okay, this is about a 60 mile travel on this desert road. Then when you get to verse 34, I mean, I'm sorry, get to verse 36. It says, and when they were going along the road, this 60 mile long road in the middle of the desert, the Ethiopian says, see, here is water. We see certainly another moment in which God was providing a means for the salvation of this man. They certainly do not have to be baptized to be saved, but this man was going to go to a land that had not yet heard of Christ. So this baptism is significant and special and is a way of being obedient to the gospel for the life of the eunuch. And so, what does Philip do? What does he say? And he commanded the chariot to stop, speaking to the eunuch. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. We don't know what was said, though it very well could have been much like we see in the footnote of my Bible in the context of some of your Bibles in verse 37. There would have been a conversation probably to explore the belief of this man. But the outcome of it was simply that he was baptized. There was water, and he was baptized. Why is that important, though? It, this is even admitting my own fault sometimes. If I was this guy, Philip, I would be slow to baptize this man. One, he doesn't know this guy from Adam. He doesn't know this guy at all. But also, I would be one that says that one should be baptized within the gathering of a local congregation, and it comes from all of Scripture. But regardless here, this man's baptized. Why isn't Philip hesitant, though? Because if you remember back to verses 1 through 25, you have this guy named Simon. that's referred to Simon the Magician. And what he does is he's baptized. And after he's baptized, he then tries to bribe Peter and John to give him the spirit of giving people the, the Holy Spirit by paying them a certain amount of money so that he would have that power and that might and that ability so that he could amaze people. Why isn't Philip hesitant to baptize this man after seeing a false convert not too many days prior? And I would argue that it's because God was doing a miraculous work of salvation and it was made clear to Philip in the work of the Spirit. So this work of the Spirit, Philip's personal evangelism, and the outcome of that is salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. Then we're going to move to this last point. This is going to be a very quick point, but I don't want to miss these verses. 39 and 40. They came out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Paul's there. This sounds like a supernatural carrying away. It could have been or could have been just the, the Spirit of God said you should go and he went. But what we know regardless of that, it says the eunuch saw him no more and he went away with rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel in the towns, came to, I can't say that today for some reason, Caesarea. Caesarea. And in this, 
we see this continual work of the Spirit of God in evangelistic efforts of Philip. We see God calling Philip away, carrying him away, the leaving and rejoicing of the, Philippi, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. But we see that Philip finds himself in Azotus and he's passing through, he's preaching the gospel until he got to Caesarea. Why is that important, Caesarea? We're going to see in weeks to come in Acts chapter 9 and 10, mainly 10. But also because at the end of Acts, we see Philip enter the scene one more time. And when Philip enters the scene one more time at the end of Acts, it's because he encounters Paul again in Caesarea. And he has children and he invests his life there. And in all of this, what we can see is Philip, the Spirit of God was not only working in the Ethiopian's eunuch's life, but in the life of those whose town that he passed through until he got to Caesarea. And then when he got to Caesarea, Philip would have continued the same lifestyle. We see that to be the case because at the end of Acts, it says he has four daughters. And his four daughters were prophetess. We're going to explore that conversation in about a year. Um, when we get to that part of Acts. But what we see is that he is pouring into and developing men and women for the sake of the gospel. Now, what does all of this mean for us this morning? Two things. Two things. Well, three things. The third one's just more an implication of it. The first thing is that God desires to save people. God is no different today than he was in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's desiring to redeem and save souls, to bring people that are at distance from him back to him, to redeem and save them. And he uses the Spirit to draw them and to lead others to them, to proclaim the gospel to them. So my charge for us, our encouragement in this, would be that we as individuals would be open to the work of the Spirit in our lives. That we would not be uh, skeptics and that we would be people that would be devoted to growing in our walk with Christ and being attuned to that of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Philip was certainly that. He was living a way in such a way that he was able to hear the angel, to hear the Spirit, and to go and to act and to do. And the outcome of that, I think, would be the same for us today. And that is the practice of personal evangelism. That you as an individual and I as an individual would go out as we leave through here, after we read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, like we do every other week. That says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that we would live that out, that we would be people that would go and we would proclaim and we would tell the gospel to individuals, that we would meet them where they're at and we would proclaim the gospel to them in such a way that is relevant to them, just as Philip does in this moment. And no, you may not get Isaiah 53 laid on a platter for you to proclaim the gospel to them, but you may get someone that is broken and beaten down by the things of this world that is in need of a Savior that will redeem and save and love them through their life circumstances. Or you may get somebody that is completely against Christ and you be strengthened by the faith that you gain in that encounter. 
Regardless, I think it is clear that if we trust the Spirit of God to work in the lives of others and in our lives in proclaiming the gospel and committing to personal evangelism, then God saves people. God has not changed in 2,000 years. God is still a God that wants to bring people that are far away to Him. This morning I started off and I said I believe that the main point of this passage of the scripture is that God was actively fulfilling his mission to furthering the gospel past the Jews to all people who would believe and trust in the name of Jesus for salvation. And that is the case there and that is the case today. That God still desires to do that. But the means in which he does it is by his people committing to sharing his gospel those around him so we're going to transition now into communion and my prayer would be is that this would be a physical reminder to us of the importance of sharing the gospel to those around us and what i mean by that is this in just a moment we're going to walk through this like we do every other time we're going to talk about how this is a a constant memory that this is a uh, seal of grace upon our life this is an assurance this is a reminder of the age to come We're going to talk about who can and cannot participate. But what I want us to see as we transition into this from the sermon is very simply this. Christ broke his body, spilt his blood. He has redeemed and saved us. And he hasn't saved us just from our sins. Not just from the wrath of God, not just from death. He certainly has saved us from all of those things. But he has saved us into something. And he has saved us into his mission, into his work of saving souls. And if we have a God that could put a man on a dusty road reading Isaiah that should not have been there. And then put another man that would come and explain that scripture to him. If God can go through all of those things to save people, he certainly can use our lives to save others. But my prayer this morning as we take communion is that we would be renewed in understanding the depths of what God has done for us in Christ. And so, I'm going to pray. We're going to transition to communion. Will you grab Lottie, please? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray now that you would be with this time as we take communion together and we would be reminded of the goodness of your son, the sacrifice he has, he has done for us to believe and trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.